You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast with your host, Jonathan Robinson-Lees. Welcome to today's episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast, and thanks for joining us. Today we speak with professional cyclist Amanda Spratt. Amanda will be part of history when the first women's Tour de France commences on July 24th, departing from the iconic Eiffel Tower in Paris. The Springwood resident will call upon her experience from three Olympic Games and multiple world championships as she competes in arguably the most significant race of her career. A leader for her team, Amanda recognises the importance of the moment both personally and for future generations. This perspective has been important for Amanda as injury twice nearly derailed her career. All the while, the love of cycling and competition helped ensure a laser focus and motivated Amanda to come through the other side. Please enjoy the latest episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Amanda, welcome to the Passion and Perspective podcast. Thanks. It's, yeah, great to be here. Amanda, you described to me before our chat that you're chasing your dream as a professional cyclist. Has the journey exceeded your expectations to this point? I think it has in in many ways. I think as a young kid and and thinking about becoming a cyclist and a professional cyclist, I probably didn't really know exactly what that entailed. I mean, yeah, I've I've moved across to Europe where I'm based primarily. Um, Yeah, I'm currently, I think I mentioned I'm currently sitting on Stelvio Pass in the Italian Alps on a training camp. And yeah, I've been to three Olympic Games, um, world championship medalist. I think, yeah, as a young kid, I just had this dream that I wanted to go to the Olympics, like full stop, and and sort of didn't realize everything that was involved in becoming a professional. So I think definitely it's exceeded my expectations. And yeah, yeah, I'm loving my job. And in 2012, that dream came to fruition when you were selected to represent Australia at the 2012 Olympic Games. Do you recall that moment when you realized that you would be going to London for those games? Yeah, I remember 2012. It was sort of, um, I had quite a bad injury a couple of years before that. So 2012, in some ways, I thought it might have been a bit too early, but sort of in the beginning of that year, I started to get, I was Australian champion um, in January and then started to get some results earlier in that year. And then I sort of started to think, oh, maybe it's a possibility. We have three starters. Maybe you know, I could be number three. And then, yeah, I just started to get a few more results. And then, yeah, finally got the call from our national coach saying that I'd been selected. And yeah, it was just the most exciting moment. And the funny thing always with selections is that you get the call and you find out that you're in the team, but then it's like you're in the team, but you can't tell anyone for three or four weeks. So, I mean, of course, I break the rule and you tell your family and, and you know, the people that you can trust not to tell the world. But, yeah, it's always that moment where you're so excited, but you can't tell anyone for a little bit. But, yeah, it was just like this huge dream come true for me. And, yeah, it was just incredible, really. And representing your country on arguably the biggest stage in sport, did you have a feeling that you'd made it as a cyclist? Yeah, I think it's, it was definitely a moment where I thought, oh, my gosh, like this has been a child, childhood dream to go to the Olympic Games and, and, and it's already happening now. And um, I was quite young at the time. So, yeah, I was one of the, the younger people in, in the race. But I think, yeah, the London Olympics was definitely uh, a big eye-opener to me as well because, as you said, it's sort of the biggest stage and it's something that everyone dreams about. And I think I just went there and was sort of completely overwhelmed by the whole experience. If I look back on it, it was just, I definitely wasn't prepared for how big of an event it was and how much that can that can take out of you. Like I remember just trying to run around and see sponsors. Um, I was sponsored by Oakley at the time and they had a really cool, you know, um, house you could go and get freebies. And I was sort of into sort of all of that aspect of things and, and the whole event rather than being purely performance um, focused, which... Yeah, I, I'm not at all like that now, but it's just sort of funny to look back on that and realise how much I've grown since that moment even. How hard is it as a professional athlete back then, but even nowadays to, I guess, manage the expectations, whether it is commercially, the fans, your teammates, your coaches, how do you go about maintaining that balance in your life? Yeah, I think managing expectations is definitely hard. And I think I have, the most amount of pressure on myself so I have really really high expectations of myself so sometimes that can be the hardest thing when I expect something out of myself when I don't get it or I don't achieve it and then I'm so hard on myself and can get quite emotional and yeah um 
and certainly in the earlier days as well, I felt there was a lot of expectation from from outside, whether there was or not. That was just sort of my impression. I come through as a junior, I was world champion as a junior and straight into the senior ranks. So I sort of felt like there was this big expectation to start winning races in Europe straight away. And sort of the cohort I came through with at a junior level were people like Mariana Voss for any listeners. Um, she's sort of the greatest of all time cyclist. She's won everything there is to to win and she was winning straight out of juniors as well. So I sort of felt this sort of external, that I had, there were external expectations and in some ways I look back and think, okay, there weren't really that many expectations, but as a high achieving person and high achieving athlete, you're always striving to be the best and you just want to take that step straight away. And I mean, cycling is sort of an endurance sport and you do see that it just takes time for some people. And for me, definitely, it just took years and years of, of training to, to really progress. I think I was in Europe racing for almost 10 years before I got my first professional victory. So it just takes persistence and yeah, resilience and, and just chasing, chasing the dream. So I just never lost sight of that, despite yeah, the, maybe the pressure I felt at the same time. And how did the 2012 Olympic road race play out for you? What was that experience like? Um, yeah, the experience was incredible. I mean, I had my, my sister came over with a, with a husband, so I had sort of family support there, which was really exciting. But as I said, I think looking back on it, I definitely let the event get the better of me. I just remember being so nervous on the start line, thinking, oh, gosh, everyone's here, everyone's, you know, this is the biggest event of my life. And so, especially in London, we had amazing crowds. We, which at that time for women cycling in any race, we normally didn't have a huge number of people roadside cheering us on. So we're literally racing out of London. Uh, I couldn't hear myself think or like couldn't speak to teammates. Like there's just so much noise around. And I think I just got so overwhelmed by that and almost lost sight of what I was supposed to be doing in the race. And I think particularly in that race, the, the pressure I put on myself and that I felt from the outside definitely got the better of me and I yeah I was I was a little bit there in the start of the race and then I ended up getting dropped and well behind and actually finished outside the time limit so even though I finished the race I didn't get a finishing time so yeah not not definitely not the result I was going there for but definitely um yeah I definitely learned a lot from that and that learning experience you went on to compete at the Rio and Tokyo games as well aside from that I guess, development in terms of having a laser focus on your performance and, and blocking out the outside noise. What else do you think you learned from the London games that you're able to take to Rio and Tokyo? Um, I think definitely just the whole, just what an Olympic Games is like, what it means, what's involved in an Olympic Games. It's very different. Uh, you know, throughout the whole year, I'm a professional cyclist and we're traveling around the world, racing, you know, in a different country every week, but it's just our sport and just our little, I don't know, bubble, if you want to say, I think we've used that word a lot with COVID as well, but it's just, you know, it's just our one sport. Whereas <clears throat> you go to the Olympics and all of a sudden it's all different sports and all, all different athletes. And, you know, you're, you're in the Olympic village and you might have to walk a kilometer to the dining hall and walk back. And so you're just doing a lot of other things that maybe you wouldn't normally do. Um, so just sort of realizing what what that's like and and yeah, there's just more it's just busier. There are more things going on. So just learning how to negotiate that and realizing that that's what it's going to be like. Um, and yeah, I think it all just comes down to remembering that it's it's all the same people that you're racing against throughout the whole year. It's not that we get to the Olympics and all of a sudden everybody <laughs> has a superpower. And I think, yeah, in London, that's in my mind what was happening as well. like it's it's totally different race and all of a sudden everyone's a level above what they were before. And yeah, I think I almost intimidated myself out of the race before it even started. So also just remembering that, I mean, it's the same ride as I was racing against last week. No one's changing dramatically. So yeah, just little things like that are always good reminders. And in your professional career, you've gone on to podium at two world championships and also in 2020 uh, won the Australian national championships. Despite those accolades and podiums and results, how do you define success in your own mind as a cyclist? I think, yeah, it's an interesting question because I think a lot of the time we see successes as just results on paper. And, you know, of course, I rate my world championship medals right up there as some of my biggest successes. But I think also just the ability to um, 
just grow each year is successful for me. I really enjoy the beginning of every year sitting down and writing out some, writing out some goals. And some of those will be, you know, I want to win this race or podium at this race, but others might be becoming more confident in this area of my riding or improving, you know, you know, um, I'm more of a hill climber, maybe improving my sprint or, or something like that. So I think it's important, yeah, in sport to have goals where you can see success as as a result, but then also just in your own personal development and developing in that way. And I think, yeah, my world championship medals have been what I've seen as big successes for me, but also what I see as successful in those is just that I was really able to be a leader there and um, I had a great group of people around me who all believed in me. And for me, that felt like a, a big success that that people believed in me and that I could become a leader in that way and, and influence people and have them believe in me and me believe in them as well. So I think it's often seen as an individual sport, but it's very much a team sport. So that's something I really enjoy is the team aspect and the team success. That perspective you referenced there in terms of looking at success as the journey and the experience, that it's much more than just the results. Has that always been your mindset? Or again, is that something more recent that you've developed? Um, I think it's always been a bit in my mindset, but it's definitely something I've developed more in in previous years or in the last few years, I think. Um, yeah, I work um, with a sports psych as well, who's really helped me improve on that. And also my coach as well has been, um, yeah, helped me a lot with that in terms of, you know, I, I think in earlier years, I was always testing a little bit over my power or like what result I got here and comparing to others so it's more just taking a step back and realizing okay actually I am progressing from year to year and you maybe I didn't get the result there but it doesn't mean that it's not a successful race so I think yeah that sort of change in mindset is has been important and I think something that's allowed me to to grow even more and yeah I'm, I'm the kind of person i I'd have a bad result and get become down about it and focus on it for for a few days. So it's also just learning how to come back from those those I guess down results or times when you're not feeling as good as you can and realizing that not every day can be better than the day before. So that's probably been another big thing for me that in my training it's been and even now I sometimes struggle that every time I do a training session I want that it's better than the one I did before so which is just not realistic so it's just yeah learning to deal with that and then cope with that you've been a professional cyclist now amanda for 10 years and this year in july we're seeing the first introduction of the women's tour de france in the modern era what does it mean for you firstly that it's there as an official race but the chance that you have to compete in that first tour de france for women yeah, I think it's an absolutely amazing thing that we've got the Tour de France for women now. I think it's been said a lot, but, you know, I speak to anyone about my sport, about professional cycling, and normally the questions, yeah, that you always get asked, have you gone to the Olympics, which I could say yes to proudly, and then do you race the Tour de France? And, you know, this is the first time I can genuinely say yes to that question. Normally it's always been like, oh, no, but we have the Giro or we have this race or that race. So. For me, that's so exciting that I can finally say yes to that. And I think, yeah, a quote that I love is that you can be what you can see. And I think that that's really important for, for younger girls, women, anyone looking to our sport um, who maybe has a dream of becoming an athlete or a professional cyclist or anything like that, that the press that is going to come with the Women's Tour de France that, you know, as a young child, I'd sit there and watch the men's Tour de France highlights. You know, I could see the men racing. But now they're going to be able to see us racing, see females racing and see that, okay, this is this is something I can really dream to be and I can become that. And I think that's a really important um, message also that's going to come from the Tour de France. Was the Peloton advocating for this for a long while, do you feel, Amanda? Has this been a long time coming? Yeah, I think it has been a long time coming. Um, there was actually yeah, um, Mariana Voss and a couple of other writers were advocating for a women's tour de France even uh, seven, eight years ago. And um, the organisation, the ASO, they they sort of, yeah, they gave us a one-day race at the Tour de France. So we went and we raced on the Champs-Élysées for a few years and then they branched out and we did a mountain stage, just one stage. And then we did a two-day race and then we went back to a one-day race. So it was sort of felt like they were sort of giving us a little bit of a taste but not really so I think yeah and yeah this is the first moment where they've really it felt like taken us seriously and seen seeing the benefit and seeing how much women's professional cycling is growing as well 
and seeing that, they, yeah, they can invest in it and they will get something back from it. So it's been a long time coming, I feel, but I'm really excited that in my career I'm going to get the chance to race it. And what's the goal for you and the team for that Tour de France, Amanda? Um, I think, yeah, we're going there with quite high expectations. Um, we actually have the Giro d'Italia uh, a month before that, so that's what I'm training for at the moment and hoping for big results there. And then the Tour de France, I think we have three key riders. One of them is me, Arno Santesteban, our Spanish rider, and Kristen Faulkner, our American, um, for the for the overall there. So I think, yeah, a realistic goal, we'd love to get a stage win at the Tour de France. So, um, yeah, we've already been and seen some of the stages. I've ridden two of the the hard stages that – I love the hard stages, the the hilly ones, the ones that most people, yeah, sort of dread when they see on paper. So I've been and ridden them and seen them. So I think that's been really inspiring for me to see those stages and, and really be able to go there and target them. Our Blue Mountains may or may not compare to the Alps of Europe, but do you feel growing up in the mountains that the hills, the the up and down slopes that you ride, it lended yourself to to be drawn to that climbing aspect? of of the racing yeah definitely I mean I've, I've grown up in the Blue Mountains my whole life in, in Springwood so um I think it's definitely defined the sort of rider that I have that I am and that I have become um yeah I mean the amount of times I've ridden up Hawkesbury Lookout is probably crazy I think anyone listening who drives out at Hawkesbury Lookout during the summer will probably see me there uh, at least three or four times a week going up and down Hawkesbury Lookout um yeah, Lapston Hill. Um, yeah, one of my favourite rides is just to go from Springwood up to Katoomba along Cliff Drive. I just, yeah, I mean, I see some amazing places in Europe and amazing scenery, but I think every year I come back and I'm, I'm back in the Blue Mountains normally from October to January every year. And, yeah, I still think riding along Cliff Drive and the Three Sisters is, is some of the most spectacular scenery that I ever see. So as well as being very tough on the, on the bike, obviously, but the ride back down also makes it worth it. So, yeah, I feel like it's definitely helped define the rider I am and that I really love that sort of tough tough terrain. I mean, yeah, there's not much, not many flat roads in the Blue Mountains, are there? And that European racing scene, it is the most competitive in the world for road cycling. Is there a favourite race that you love competing in every year? Yeah, I think my favourite race each year is the the Giro d'Italia. So that's our tour of Italy. Actually, we just had the men's version was recently on and we had Jai Hindley become the first Australian to win that on the men's side. So that was really exciting to see. But for me, that's probably my favourite race. Um, I might change my mind after the Tour de France <laughs> this year, but as it, as it stands for the previous years, that's been sort of our only grand tour. And the reason I love it <clears throat> is just because it offers so many opportunities. It's a 10-day tour for us and we have normally a time trial. We have some flat stages, some stages that are just up and down and normally some mountain stages as well. So <clears throat> it's a race that, yeah, I just think it provides op- all different of opportunities. Um, some years we've started in Naples and finished all the way up in Milan. So it's always sort of a bit of an epic epic travel as well as, as racing and, and different courses every day. And, yeah, I finished on the overall podium there twice. So I think it always, you know, you always love a race where you've, where you've performed well too. So, yeah, I think that's definitely my favourite race. As you referenced, Amanda, you grew up in Springwood in the Blue Mountains. What was your childhood like? Um, yeah, I had a great childhood. I think yeah, always, always very active. Yeah, I still remember a funny story when I think my sister, she's five years older, and um, she was just walking to Springwood Primary, and my mum, mum was with a friend there, and I was in the pram. And then I always wanted to get out and, and walk, and I refused to be in the pram. Always wanted to walk, and mum's friend said, "Ah, oh, she's going to be an athlete." <laughs> so I always, yeah, that's always such a funny story to, to think back on. And yeah, I was just always, yeah, really active. And yeah, my parents were so supportive of that. And my brother Nick, he's eighteen months younger than me. We were sort of always doing things together and riding our bikes or. Yeah, Dad, we had mountain bikes as, as young kids and went out to Martin's Lookout on the mountain bikes and back. And I still remember that felt like the most epic mountain bike ride ever. And now I can walk out there and back from home in about 30 minutes. So it's funny to think back on that. But, um, yeah, I mean, we had we have a pool at home, so we just spent hours in the pool. Yeah, just just trying all different sports as well. But just, yeah, just just fun times and being active and, yeah, in a really supportive family environment as well. Do you recall your first introduction to bike riding? 
I don't know if I can remember my first moments, but I mean, I've been on a, a BMX bike since I was nine and that's sort of when I first started racing. So I always remember that moment and sort of cycling's been a family sport. So my dad and my grandfather both used to race when they were younger and and dad sort of took us along to the BMX club to try that out. And I was on, I had my yellow stack hat, my pink tracksuit and my pink Kmart bike and was, was at the back just pottering around the track looking like I had no competitive bone in my body. Um, so it's always funny to, to think back on that. I, I remember that and I think we still have the home video of that race as well. So, yeah, funny to look back on. What was it that you loved about it in those early days being on two wheels? Was there something particular that really drew you in? <clears throat> um. I think I just loved the freedom of it and that we could go out, we could go away from, certainly yeah, when we had the mountain bikes as young kids, we got to go out with dad and he'd take us out to yeah, Layla Drive or Martin's Lookout on our bikes. And that was just fun to get out of the house and be on the road and out on the street. So I think definitely that freedom aspect of it and just the challenge of it too. I think, yeah, when I did the BMX racing, um, it, yeah, I, started, I got, obviously got more and more competitive and, and got a better bike and, I just really love that challenge of trying to beat the others. And as a young kid, I was often in with the boys as well. So trying to beat the boys was always was always a fun thing for me. So I am definitely very competitive. I think you have to be as an athlete. So I enjoyed that competitive competitive nature of it as well. So yeah, I think that's what I loved about it. And were there idols? Were there were there people you were looking up to either in cycling or or elsewhere um, when you were growing up? People that you really saw as role models in your life. Um, I think at a younger age, uh, I think definitely the 2000 Olympics was influential for me watching that from home. So I was a bit older then, but I think that's where I first sort of got my first idols or role models in. I, st- I can still remember sitting and watching Kathy Freeman in the 400 metres and, and just seeing what that meant to her and to the nation. Um, same with Kieran Perkins in the 1500 metres at the 2000 um, Olympics as well. So yeah, I remember fangirling and writing sort of letters to people like Susie O'Neill and Kieran Perkins and Kathy Freeman and then I'd get the postcard back. But, but things like as a young, hiring to, to be there and be at the Olympics. So, yeah, I think the 2000 Olympics was probably where I really started to, to have idols or role models and people that I looked up to. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. And what role did education play in your childhood? Yeah, I think it was quite important. I was always quite academic as well. I um, I enjoyed school and I enjoyed, um, yeah, the study and the work that went alongside it. Um, yeah, in, in primary school, obviously, it was a bit more fun. And, yeah, I don't have a lot of huge academic memories from, from the primary school. But then I went along to Blue Mountains Grammar School and, yeah, it was always really important. I remember I'd often... Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday evenings, I'd go down to Sydney to train, but I'd obviously catch the train from Wiltless Falls to Springwood and I'd try to get all my homework done there so then I could go and and then do the training and not have to do it when I came back. And, yeah, I think it was always really important to me when I started travelling as well. I'd take my books away. um, And, yeah, the the school was really, really supportive of it as well. I mean, I remember sitting at a parent-teacher interview. I think it was in year 11, maybe year 12, and then mum and dad explained that, yeah, I was going to be going away for about eight weeks, <laughs> something like that. And <clears throat> the teachers were just a bit in shock and then sort of, yeah, then came up with a plan after that and said, okay, this is how we can manage it. Um, and, yeah, I was also really committed to that and to sort of, yeah, going well in my studies as well. So it's probably something I'm quite proud of as well that I was able to get a really quite a high UAI, UAI, I think we called it then. I don't know. It's called something, ATAR, I think now, isn't it? So, yeah, um, yeah, I'm quite proud that I was still able to get a really good mark in school as well. In those latter years of high school, did you have specific career aspirations, paths that you wanted to go down? Yeah, I remember, like, I was thinking a lot academically and what I wanted to do. Um, at one point, I really wanted to be a nurse. Um, so <laughs> I was thinking along those lines. And then in year 10, I went and did the, um, the when it was the where you go and spend a week like shadowing a nurse um, in at Nepean Hospital and I did that whole week and I think, yeah, I just didn't really enjoy it. So I realised, okay, that's not what I want to do. And then I thought maybe like journalism or something like this, uh, something science-y. I, was, I really enjoyed biology. That was my favourite subject at school. So I was thinking along those lines. But at the same time in my head, I knew that 
I really wanted to chase that dream of becoming a cyclist. So I knew I'd be probably be overseas. And at, the, at that time, it was really difficult to do a degree like that by distance ed. So yeah, sort of that sort of definitely influenced my decision about what career path I wanted to take academically as well. And whilst the prospect of being a professional cyclist was kind of bubbling away and you'd obviously shown the talent to pursue that, did you face any pressures from school or family or, or elsewhere to pursue what I would call a, a normal job? Actually, no, not that, yeah, certainly not that I remember. I know my family were really supportive of, you know, I have the most amazingly supportive parents and they knew how much this meant to me to chase my dream as a cyclist. Um, and they also knew that I, you know, I was also thinking academically and, and straight out of school, I enrolled in a Bachelor of Business. I did the first year of that actually and realised I hated every subject, so I should probably switch. So, so I took a year off and then I switched to a Bachelor of Communications in Public Relations. So I think they never really had to push that on me. I was sort of always seeking that out and thinking, okay, what degree can I do? Or, you know, what, where, where do my interests lie? So I was also sort of seeking that out rather than, than them having to, to push that as well. So I think that they could see that, yeah, it's it, both options could work and that I was motivated to make both options work as well. And at what point, Amanda, did you realise that, hey, you know what, cycling can be my career path? I think I was lucky. So straight out of juniors, which juniors finishes when you're 18 years old. So yeah, the same time I was finishing year 12, I actually got offered an Australian Institute of Sport scholarship straight out of school. So that meant I went straight across to Europe with with the group then and started racing. Um, at that time, though, the women's professional scene was not was not huge. There were probably one or two teams where it was really growing. So I spent the first sort of five, six years just with the Australian national team and doing races. And I think probably towards the end of that time, I started to really realise, okay, there are more teams around now. I'm actually going pretty well. This is a career path I can really take. So I think it definitely took a few years before I really believed that this is something I could pursue for for a longer term. And certainly in in the last three, four years, the the sport has just grown exponentially. It's yeah, it's it's amazing the progress it's made. So I think, yeah, now it's really I'm, you know, I'm making a great living out of my my passion. So that's been really exciting. How hard was it for you, you know, 18, 19 years old there to pack up and leave the Blue Mountains, the place that you'd lived for so long, and move over to Europe? It was definitely a challenge, but I think the excitement of it all um, at that time was like overrided a bit more, more the challenge of it. Looking back on it, I think, yeah, actually it was a really big challenge and I'm pretty proud of that I was able to, to, to do that and come over to Europe and, and make a home and, yeah, call it my base. Um, but, yeah, in, in the early days for sure, like I'd never really lived out of home before. Um, I remember mum gave me the recipe for, for like, like I hadn't really even cooked much myself. Mum gave me the recipe for the spaghetti bolognese that she cooked for the whole family and you know I didn't realize it was a recipe for for you know a family of five so I'd cook it all for myself and you know <laughs> wondered why I came back five kilos heavier <laughs> no just like little things like that that I had to learn along the way but I mean I have to say at the time as well we had quite a supporting environment with the ARS and we sort of had a team house so I was there living with with um, girls who had already been there in previous years and I was the young young pup but I had um, riders that were a bit older a bit more life experience to to sort of try and guide me but definitely that it was definitely a challenge um, moving over there uh, we were living in northern Italy not many people speak English at all there at, at that time but it was just nice that we had a little Australian base as well. In that environment with the AIS squad was there someone who kind of stood out as a bit of a mentor for you who kind of took you took you in and I guess showed you the ways? Um, yeah, I was quite fortunate, yeah, when I was sort of in that junior under-19 category in, into the seniors we had within New South Wales, we had some really um, top women, really experienced riders like Kate Bates, um, Nat Bates, Olivia Gollum, to name a few, who really sort of took me under their wing and and really supported me and were just people that I could ask questions to and people I felt comfortable talking to and they sort of looked out for me and and invited me a few times to to ride with them or go on short training camps with them. So I think looking back on that, that made a big difference to me just to see what they were doing and what it was like to be a professional cyclist. At that time, they were in professional teams as well. So I think, yeah, for me, it was really nice to have role models like that and 
you know, I went to a race and I wasn't going particularly well when I was, when I first made the jump up. So I was sort of, you know, coming in the last bit of the pack, but they were always someone there that came and gave advice and made me feel positive about my, about my results. And from a cycling perspective, Amanda, what was the biggest difference you noticed from your racing and your training that you've been doing in Australia to being in Europe around all those teams and squads? Um, I think the biggest difference is just the certainly the racing level is just uh, there's a huge difference between the racing level in Australia and in Europe, especially at that time. We didn't have much of a national road series or many national races in Australia at that time. So I think just the intensity of the races and how much people were training compared to what I'd been used to. We were racing um, at the beginning of the races we times in a week. And then, you know, yeah, we just didn't have much recovery, a lot more, a lot more races. And at that time, it's a bit different now in a professional team, but with the areas, we were driving everywhere to races. So we might have a race in, I still remember we had a race in Belgium one night, one day, and then we'd drive 10 hours back to Italy. And then we had one day in Italy, and then we'd drive 10 hours back to Holland to race another race. And I still remember one race, we were driving back to Italy and we have the Goddard Tunnel, which is a a 17 kilometre road tunnel that, that you go underneath the mountain pass rather than over the top because normally it's shut with snow and the race had finished at about 6 p.m so we got to this tunnel at 10 or 11 p.m and then the tunnel was shut and then we didn't we didn't have the finances to um, get a hotel room that night so decided to go back um, go over a different mountain pass get to Italy we arrived at six in the morning (laughs) went to sleep had a few hours sleep and then two days later we were driving back up north for another race so that was definitely eye-opening in my early days about just, yeah, how much travel you can do. And also as an Australian that you can, yeah, you can drive 10 hours and cross four countries was pretty eye-opening for an Australian who'd, yeah, only been to New Zealand before that. <laughs> and Amanda, in 2008, as you referenced earlier on, you're diagnosed with piriformis syndrome. <clears throat> Describe to us what happened with that diagnosis. Yeah, so in 2008, yeah, I was diagnosed with piriformis syndrome, but just going backwards from that. So pretty much from when I stepped up into the elite ranks in 2006, I just started to not feel great in my leg and started to get a lot of pain in my back, in my leg, down my leg, in my sh- in my foot. Like my foot actually grew a size because I just kept riding through this pain. Um, and it was actually quite hard to diagnose. So normally the piriformis syndrome, it when you have this syndrome, it, it means the, the piriformis, the sciatic nerve, sorry, goes through the piriformis muscle and gets pinched and that's what causes the pain. But for me, that wasn't the case. So it was actually a really hard diagnosis to make. Um, eventually in 2008, I was trying to do a tour in France, maybe got five days into the tour and just just collapsed with the pain. I just couldn't ride anymore with the pain. It was just too much. And uh, they suggested going back to Canberra to the AIS there. And I really worked with yeah, an amazing doctor, Greg Lovell and physio Craig Purdom. And they, yeah, just made it their mission to sort of figure out what was wrong. And eventually uh, I had a diagnosis of piriformis syndrome. Um, and the problem was that I had sort of ridden through this chronic pain for so long that my sciatic nerve had stuck to my piriformis muscle with scar tissue. Uh, so it was beyond, I couldn't have, yeah, I had cortisone injections and things to try and treat it like that. But yeah, it wasn't working. So we went down the path of surgery. So I went to Sydney, uh, had surgery. They opened me all up and essentially, yeah, got the, they had to redesign the shape of the piriformis muscle. Um, so that's a different shape now to allow less surface area against the sciatic nerve. Um, yeah, they had to obviously cut away the sciatic nerve off the muscle and then stitch me up, up again. Um, and yeah, the surgeon said he couldn't believe that I could still race. He's never seen, never seen a nerve stuck. Like there was no movement at all in the nerve. So he said, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure how you are still racing with that. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was crazy. And, and because it was a neural injury and because I'd ridden um, with the pain for so long, I also had a lot of chronic pain issues afterwards as well. And, and trying to sort of retrain my brain that, you know, I'd gotten so used to just cycling and cycling with pain that even when everything physically was fixed, even when I started riding again, I still felt that same pain because neurologically I associated cycling with pain. So aside from all the physical rehabilitation, we also brought in a pain specialist, Laura Mosley, who sort of had to work um, 
mentally with me on, on sort of learning to ride without pain and, and retrain my brain. So, yeah, it was, yeah, I lived at the ARS for 18 months during that rehab period. Um, and, yeah, it was also a really tough time as well because, <clears throat> I mean, I was just in the resis there, um, just in a single room and, and athletes at the ARS that are always coming in and out to competition and there weren't many there who were rehabbing for as long as I was with an injury. So, yeah, I, I was, yeah, a really tough time as well. I became quite depressed. Um, yeah, qu- quite depressed actually. So that was probably probably the toughest moment in my life, I think. And what did it mean for you, Amanda, to, you'd been cycling for a couple of years professionally. Did, did you feel like your, your dreams were being taken away from you at that point? Definitely, yeah. I think for myself, I always believed that I could get back there and I would get there. But I just remember some conversations around me, um, not from people really, really close to me, but there were some conversations around, oh, maybe, maybe it's time, maybe you're not going to get back there. Um, <clears throat> maybe, you know, it's time to give up your scholarship or, um, yeah, there were just always those doubts. But I think the most important thing for me is that I still had amazing people around me. Like I mentioned my doctor, physio, my family as well, and everyone was really supportive and knew the work that I would put in to get back there but yeah as time dragged on as I said I was there for almost 18 months and you know and in a a really dark spot for some of those months as well I definitely felt like yeah I'm not sure if I can get back there or if I will so yeah I'm yeah just grateful that I got out of there. (laughs) And being in a dark place during that time Amanda waking up each day what motivated you to push on? I think what motivated me was just always that belief that I could get back there or I would get back there. And anyone who knows me knows that I'm I'm extremely stubborn and I don't give up on things easily. So I think a bit of that definitely came into it. You know, I had this dream of being a professional cyclist and I wasn't going to give up on it and no one could tell me otherwise. So I think that stubbornness, um, competitive edge, all of that definitely, definitely helped. But yeah, as in that environment though, I had it, yeah good people around me that saw that I was in a in not a very good place and so I had really good routine in the day I had a lot of appointments and and things to keep me busy and and to keep believing and to seeing the little little bits of progress um yeah I remember I even had one um staff member I was working with that got me in the pool and tried to like start training me more as a swimmer just to sort of give me some sort of motivation to improve and um I'm a terrible swimmer so yeah it didn't go so well but just yeah little things like that Going through that experience, like 18 months, and even before that, the pain for, for years that led to the culmination of the, of the diagnosis, going through that, what was the biggest shift in your mindset as a person, do you feel? Um, I think the biggest yeah, shift in mindset as a person was just um, believing in myself a bit more or having confidence in myself and, and knowing what I can do and what I could put up with and that you know if I have a dream and I keep chasing it then I then I can achieve it I think was definitely one and just trying to be more open and honest sometimes with people I mean yeah I was based in Canberra and my family for the most part were in the Blue Mountains and didn't know the full extent of how just mentally down I was getting there and depressed and you know almost not wanting to be here so I think just becoming more open with them and I still remember yeah mum had the phone call from the psych and yeah she didn't yeah, they just didn't know how bad I was there. So I think just trying to be a little bit more open um, about this and, and and accepting help, I think, as well has, has been one. Sometimes I'm, yeah, as I said, I'm quite stubborn and, yeah, mum always has funny stories how, I, yeah, she could never tell me anything or teach me anything. As a young kid, I always wanted to do everything by myself. So <laughs> just trying to, you know, that's ingrained in me, but trying to be just better at accepting help and, and realizing, yeah, I don't always know the best way. What advice would you pass on, Amanda? If, if people are going through a tough spot in life, whether that be sport, work, otherwise, what advice would you pass on as a first step to try to try to break out of that and and start to, I guess, grow through that experience? Um, I think just reaching out to someone that you trust or. Um... I think that can really help just having even just having one conversation can just help to sort of relieve your bit and take something off your shoulders. Just someone that you trust, one conversation 
can help or one text message or, or anything like that, but just maybe one person <clears throat> knows how you're feeling and, and then help can come from that. And yeah, just for me, definitely just having a good group of people around me is, is what helped. And yeah, I think just starting that initial conversation is really important. And within the past few years, you've faced adversity again. You had to overcome iliac artery endofibrosis. What impact did that have on your cycling? Yeah, so that's been like a more difficult one in the last couple of years, actually. Uh, so that pretty much derailed my last couple of seasons, um, which I didn't know until I had the diagnosis. So particularly last year in the Olympic year, I'd, I'd spent the winter in Europe um, ready to sort of tackle the Olympic year and, and be in really top shape for that. And as the season progressed, I just started to not go as well. I wasn't recovering well, um, had really a lot of pain in my quads, in my legs, uh, just couldn't produce the sort of power I knew I was capable of, especially in races and especially when it got really hard. And that all culminated at the Tokyo Olympics where I went there as a realistic medal chance. Um, that was sort of the expectation from me, from others, and I think a fair expectation as well. I'd medaled at the two previous um, world championships. so. Yeah, I'd been and seen the course. I knew that was one where I could perform well. And and there I just had these, yeah, these terrible sensations in my legs and ended up not finishing the race. Um, and, yeah, I was lucky with my team. A few weeks later I was able to go to Holland where there's a specialist in this. It's not an uncommon injury for cyclists, so I do know a few others like Annemiek van Vluten, Mariana Voss as well as had the same condition. And went there and was diagnosed with yeah, iliac artery endofibrosis, which essentially means that the art, for, for me anyway, my artery had become far too narrow. Um, the iliac artery, uh, normally I think it's over one centimetre in diameter. Mine had shrunk to three or four millimetres in diameter and, and less when I'm trying to produce power. So I'm in that crunched position. So, yeah, the tests showed that essentially when I'm trying to cycle at threshold or above so at really that race pace for longer durations my legs were not getting blood in them to assist with that which is a yep quite a problem uh for my sport and it was also starting to affect me just you know if I'd sit for long periods I could also just feel my legs aching so yeah I mean for me it was quite hard to accept that yeah it happened in the Olympic year and I said to my coach uh you know why did it have to happen at the Olympic Games? You know, the one race where everyone's watching. And <laughs> and he said, yeah, if it had happened in a smaller race in Belgium, we would have just said, don't worry, it was just a smaller race in Belgium. doesn't matter. Or, you know, I've been training through that. So, yeah, it's definitely been a bit hard to accept that it happened there and that was such a big goal. But I'm always sort of trying to just keep looking forward. And, yeah, I've had the surgery now and still sort of recovering now and trying to get back to my top level. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. With all the adversity that you've had to overcome, Amanda, your, your career has gone from strength to strength over the years. What is it that you love about cycling nowadays? What keeps drawing you back and, and pushing past those tough times? Yeah, I think for me, I just, yeah, fundamentally, I just love riding my bike. Um, I just I just love cycling um, and have done since I, I was a young kid. So I think, yeah, sometimes I talk to people and they're driven only by results or they just want to win or this or that. But for me, I just love riding my bike. And so fundamentally, that's the one thing I always come back to that, that I love that. But I also, as I said, I'm really competitive. So I, I also love racing. I love having goals and trying to get better each year. And I get excited when I chat to my coach and we talk about a new training block and then I see my training program. And if there's a lot of sessions there where I know I'm just going to be seeing stars and dizzy and like hating him at the same time, then I also get really excited by that. So I think I love the challenge of it, of just trying to improve yourself. And also just, yeah, I love the people that I get to meet, um, the places I get to travel as well. So that's all something that, yeah. Just love every aspect of it. You mentioned before that for a lot of people from the outside looking in, it is an individual sport, but in reality it is a team sport with really <clears throat> clearly defined roles. What is your objective as being one of the, the climbers and leaders within your team? Yeah, so that's right. It's, it's team sport. So I'm 
one of the the climbers in the team and someone that can normally finish off a race in in the finale so a lot of the time the expectation for me is that I'm a leader so that means I'm someone there to get the final result if it's if it's a hillier race if it's a flatter race then maybe my job is earlier and my job is to protect the sprinter or other riders getting to position I mean we're racing in Belgium a lot of the time on roads about the size of a, of a footpath or, or a bit more so it's, it's a lot of technical aspects to, to get into position so it's really dependent on the course um, what your role will be and what the expectations are as well so that's definitely the harder the race is the more likely it is that I'm going to be a leader in the team but I think in cycling, you also have to be adaptable um, in terms of what your objectives are in races. Um, you know, we have crashes, we have punctures, we have, you know, all sorts of things that can happen on the road and you have to be able to change in an instant. Um, and something, yeah, that I think is really valuable is the ability to be honest with yourself and with your teammates. And that's something that's, that's a really important aspect as well. If, if you're racing and you think, actually, I'm not feeling great today then I think being able to communicate that and, and say this to your teammates is really important. So that's, yeah, something that I think is an important aspect of it. And also my other role normally in races is the road captain. So that means that on the road, then I'm the one that can tactically make the decisions on the road if we need that, if yeah, we need to chase something or if we need to get someone in position or, or make a decision, then that all comes on me. And so I make that decision. And then if it's right or wrong, then we discuss that after the race. But in the moment, then everyone can trust me to make the decision. And do embrace that leadership role. Have you always enjoyed being a leader within your sport? No, I don't. I, definitely not in my early days. It, it definitely didn't come naturally to me. And I'm definitely not the sort of leader that's standing at the front and barking orders and, you know, trying to put everyone in their place. I'm definitely um, more the sort of leader that. Um, lead by example I think I'm you know not naturally a hugely talkative person um not really outgoing but I think I've realized that yeah leading by example that, that I guess I've realized that there are all different types of leaders and you know you don't have to fit into one mold and maybe that's what I struggled with in my earlier years when I was given leadership roles is that I didn't think I was a leader because I I wasn't really outgoing and <laughs> able to really you know uh, yeah, I see some of my Dutch teammates, so, you know, they're always a lot more vocal and I'm just not like that. But I think, yeah, I can get the same respect from my teammates. And I think, yeah, it's really important to realise that there are different sorts of leaders as well. And I'm one more that can lead by example. And I have a lot of experience now and it's been really nice. We have a lot of younger riders on our team this year who are just doing the road for the, the first time. And when they come to me with questions or I can offer advice and that's, yeah, something that's always really special and where I realise, okay, yeah, I am a leader and, and I can do it. Um, and I think certainly my world championships, um, both times when I medaled, I went there as the sole leader. And so I had a lot of pressure as well, but I also realized that I can handle that and that's fine. And I really enjoyed being a leader at those worlds. So I think that gave me a lot of confidence that I could do it there. The speeds that cyclists hit in those professional races, and you spoke about some of the tracks, they might be thin, they might be cobblestone, they might be bumpy. Does fear come into it on race day for you, Amanda? There's all, yeah, there's definitely fear there sometimes, but I think more there's nerves. So before a race, I'm always nervous before a race. Usually it doesn't matter what sort of race it is. Yeah, I often get that question, do you get nervous anymore? The answer is yes, I do get nervous and probably even more so for the races where I know I can go well. Um, so I think probably nerves more than fear. Um, I think. As I've become older, I definitely feel a bit more fear sometimes. Maybe we're going down a crazy downhill with, you know, a million corners and and there's some really, really skilled descenders in the race now and I know I need to keep up with them. So sometimes there's a little bit of fear, but I think what's been really important is just being able to overcome that fear and take the fear out of it and just see the process in what I'm doing. So if there's a downhill and I might be a bit scared of it, then what's the process to get down there? Okay. How do I break? How do I want to position for my corners? Where do I want to start the downhill? So I think that's the way I sort of combat the fear is to, um, yeah, think of it as a process and what are the steps to, to get from the, the top of the downhill to the bottom of the downhill. And it's always a work in progress. I mean, sometimes you might have a crash on the downhill and then it does, it does take a while to get that confidence back. So, yeah, it's also being a bit kind to yourself sometimes. And can you take us to... What your mindset is like when, when you're on one of those climbs, an uphill climb, 
you've been riding for a hundred plus kilometers. Like what is your mindset at that hardest point of the ride? Yeah, I think the most challenging point is something like what you've described where you've already got hundred K in your legs. Um, a lot of our races, maybe 120, 140 K. And you know, you have to go at your maximum at this point when you're already tired. And this is the, you know, when all the negative self-talk can start creeping in. And this is something we work a lot on. And as I mentioned, I'm working with the sports psych. So this is definitely a big topic is how do you push through that pain or keep yourself going in those moments? And it's similar to maybe what I said before, it's just that process of, you know, what are you doing? Um, it's also, for me, it's like segmenting a climb and having like goals. Okay, get to this point of the climb. Um, that point um, I focus on my breathing a lot when my legs start to burn it's almost like a you know shut up legs and (laughs) just you know focus on my breathing and just trying to take deep breaths and just follow the wheel ahead of me but it's definitely such a mental aspect at that point of the race I mean it's really easy just to say oh it's too hard I can't keep up anymore so it's definitely I think in in those moments in races you see who the most mentally tough riders are as well who can just sort of push through that pain barrier We've spoken with a few ultra trail runners on the podcast and they, they often talk about in that dark place that they start to bargain with themselves, you know, okay, if we get to the top of this hill, we can have a break. If we get around the corner, you know, we can take it easy. Do you find that you start to bargain with yourself during those tough moments? No, I don't bargain with myself. I don't think so, no. I more just think, I maybe a five kilometer climb and it's the last part. Then I just think, just get to that five kilometer. It's more just saying, you know, you just need to get to the top there. You need to be, yeah, with these riders at the top, then, you know, you'll get to, if you get to the top here with these riders, then you'll get to the finish or you'll get to the next point or, or something like this. So it's more like segmenting it and saying, yeah, if I get here, then, then I know I'm going to get to this next point. Um, even in uh, Liège, Bastogne-Liège, which is one of our biggest one day races. Um, I came 10th there this year. But I remember we came to the final hard climb and I knew by the top I could see two riders from the team, same team ahead of me and I just knew I needed to kill myself to just get to them because I know that they're, they're invested in chasing back to the front. So it was sort of just that, you know, that I don't want to call it desperation, <laughs> just that you know like you just need to be there because then that will take you further into the race. And it's, it is hard to comprehend for, for those of us who don't ride but you're often going you know, day after day, you spoke about the Giro, a 10-day race, the Tour de France, where you're backing up day after day with hundreds of kilometres in your legs. What's involved in your recovery process? Yeah, that's right. And I think these are the most challenging points of the year when you are doing day after day, like a a 10-day tour, like I mentioned in the Giro. You know, we're racing for three and a half, four to four and a half hours every day normally we have a two three-hour bus ride maybe less maybe more some days to the next hotel so we're basically going across or up down Italy so it does really become really important with the recovery and and how well you look after yourself so you normally you know we're having a shower and then we get our recovery meal in our protein shake um, we'll have normally some plain rice so definitely the nutrition side of things is really important especially to be able to back up day after day um, massage as well um, another thing I really like to use is the PR lotion. So that's PR lotion by Momentus. And that's essentially a bicarb cream that you can, I use it essentially yeah, on my legs. And yeah, for me, it just helps. Yeah, it's natural electrolyte really helping me to recover, recover faster and sort of inhibit some of the negative effects you get in your legs. So for me, I found that a really something I discovered actually our team physiologist to couple of years ago got me onto that and sort of started using it a bit skeptical started using it and thought actually yeah I think this feels good for me so I think yeah that's definitely one that we have good recovery tip that I've something that we do to recover quite well and then yeah even just as simple as getting good sleep has been really important um yeah never underestimate what sleep can do for recovery so yes I like to have naps and I call napping part of my job so it's pretty great (laughs) Amanda, a proud moment for you was graduating university. Why, why was it so? Why was that such an important thing for you? Um, I think, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I think academic or well, the academic side of things has also always been really important for me. I think I was probably inspired a bit by my parents, both you know, graduated uni. Even my mum did a master's of teaching when we were all young kids. So just seeing what that that she did that, and then 
my sister was always really academic, really high-level piano, um, Bachelor of Science Law. So just seeing what Zoe did as well. Um, so I think, yeah, I really wanted to go to uni and, and to, to have something alongside of my cycling. I think always with an eye to, you know, cycling will only take me so far in my life and then there's, there's always a next phase and I wanted to be a little bit prepared for that. And also just seeing the importance of having something other than my cycling to, to focus on during that time. I mean, yeah, I'm a professional athlete. I'm training a lot. But I do have hours in the day where I'm, where I'm not napping or, you know, where I, yeah, I can actually have time for other stuff. So I think, yeah, it was sort of both of those aspects. So I wanted to have something else to do. Uh, I did the whole thing by distance education, so through open unis and ended up graduating through Griffith Uni with a Bachelor of Communications in Public Relations. Um, and, yeah, I was not there for my graduation, but we were able to postpone it um, and I could go there when I went back to Australia. So mum and dad came up in Brisbane and I remember almost being like a bit like emotional, like teary, and it took I think, three and a half or nine years to do, but I just felt like, wow, that's like as much as I've done in cycling. Where do you see yourself post-cycling? When, when the time comes to call it a day, do you have, I guess, ideas where, where you take your career and your life? Yeah, so I don't, like, I don't have a life plan or a definite like, moment and I'll move into this job. But I do feel like um, with the way women's cycling is going and progressing, I'd love to be able to give something back in, in, this, in this area, um, whether it's with a team or working with a sponsor or a brand and, yeah, I've had a few opportunities already um, proposed to me for, for post-career. So I think, yeah, there are already sort of opportunities showing up. Um, I always quickly told people I'm not retiring yet, but <laughs> come back to me in a couple of years. But, yeah, so I'm not entirely sure, but I think definitely something in the sporting arena or giving back to the sport, um, yeah, and the, the female sport as well, I think. Even something in Australia helping to, to build things there. So. Not entirely sure yet, but, um, yeah, I think, yeah, there are definitely opportunities there for me. Do you take time to reflect on the journey to this point, Amanda? It's been an incredible 15-plus years with, with some amazing highs but some, some really challenging lows. Do you often stop and, and reflect back on your journey to this point? Uh, probably not as much as I should, and I think it's probably something I'm not very good at. Um, is reflecting on on that I think I know even like if I get a good result I'm not very good at like I'm like oh that was a great result and then you know move on to the next thing I'm not very good at celebrating the victories um and sometimes I look back and think I really I mean it's really hard to win a race to win a bike race let alone win a bike race in Europe so I think I really should have celebrated that more at the time but you don't know that at the time but I think yeah I'm I'm probably not good at reflecting back on how far I've come or the challenges I've overcome and, and sometimes it's more people around me that say hey like isn't it amazing like that you I don't know that you raced for two years with a blocked artery with no blood in your leg and what you did or that you managed to get through your piriformis syndrome or isn't it amazing yeah you got your degree or things like that so I think it's definitely something I need to get better at um, I tend to focus more on all the the things I haven't done well that I need to get better at um, which I think is a good quality, but sometimes it's definitely better to be able to just sit back and reflect and say, oh, actually, that was pretty cool what I did or give myself a pat on the back. So, yeah, I think, yeah, even seeing, I think the fact I've been to three Olympics and maybe talking to young kids sometimes and they just think you're an absolute hero or it's amazing that you've been there or I, I you know, enjoy, I uh, give away my cycling kit every year when I come back to Australia. So I donate it to, I'm part of the Penrith Cycling Club. So my juniors are all kitted out in in my, my pro team kit, um, a couple of years ago, I sent out to Dubbo Cycling Club. This last summer just gone, I sent my kit out to Bathurst Cycling Club. And then, yeah, I received a video back with all the little kids in my kit. And then I think, oh, actually, that's, that's cool that I can also inspire the next generation. And that's something nice to then reflect on, yeah, maybe what I have achieved and the impact I can have. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a humbling moment. And do you believe in life, Amanda, that we find ourselves or that we create ourselves? Do you think that the path is laid out for us and we just live it or that every decision we make every day shapes where we end up? No, I think, a bit, I mean, I think a bit of both, but I think ultimately it's your decisions that can create your path and 
that yeah maybe maybe there is a path that that you're on but it doesn't mean you can't sway from that or there are, there are moments that maybe define define what you can do or what you want to do so I, I firmly believe that you can make decisions that impact on what what way you're going to go in life I mean yeah I got to year 12 I made a decision to chase my dream as a cyclist had I maybe decided to go to uni then things could look really different um you know I wouldn't be over here racing or you know, maybe in 2008, I made the decision that, okay, this is all too hard. I can't keep cycling. Then, yeah, it's, you know, some, if I believed what some people said, then I would, you know, be sitting in an office in, I don't know, in Sydney now doing, doing a totally different job. So I think, you know, in that moment, ultimately, I made the decision that I wasn't finished yet and I wanted to, to continue this path. So I think, yeah, it's, I definitely believe, you know, decisions, you can, you can impact on, you know, where your life is going to take you. And it's an exciting period of, of racing coming up for you, Amanda, with, as we said, the Giro, the Tour de France, and many more to come. What's the best way for people to follow your progress? Yeah, no, it's a really exciting time coming up. Um, I think, yeah, to follow my progress, I think, yeah, I'm on Instagram, AmandaSprout87. That's probably the one I'm most active on. Um, my mum often tweets things on my mum's a good one to follow on Twitter. She's always following everything there. But, um, yeah, my team, Bike Exchange Jayco um, team as well, so that's my professional team and they're often giving big updates. But I think the exciting thing with Giro and I think Tour de France is going to be on TV, on SBS. So if anyone wants to tune in and be sleep-deprived or record and watch later, I'll accept that as well. Then that's a good way to follow too. <laughs> Amanda, thank you so much for sharing your incredible and inspiring journey on the Passion and Perspective podcast. Wishing you all the best. Thanks. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for the chat. Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast. The Passion and Perspective podcast is made in loving memory of Katie Margaret Lees, who truly lived with passion and perspective.